Today's reading of scripture comes from the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Can we stand together for the reading of God's word? Sharon's going to come up and read for us. Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is the word of the Lord. In 1973, there was a theologian, Anglican theologian. His name was James Ingersoll Packer. And some of you perhaps know him as J.I. Packer. He wrote a series of magazine articles in a theological journal that dealt with the understanding and knowledge of God. And he wrote it for a, a particular type of audience. And there was a group of people, especially a publisher, who said, you know, this is really good. How about we publish a book? And he said, no one's going to read that book because no one's really interested in knowing God. Well, now decades later, and after a million copies sold, and perhaps truly a Christian classic, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, has been read and applied. Um, so perhaps some of you have read it. Maybe some of you have started it and said, oh, this is hard. I don't know if I could read this. But there's this one statement that he makes in there that I think of it as the thesis statement of this book. He says, one can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of him. What does he mean by that? What is he talking about? You know, I do think that's true. He's so spot on. Is that there are a lot of people in this world who know about God. They know qualities about God. They know some intellectual or philosophical ideas of God. They don't know him. Um, some have cursed about him. Some have questioned him. But do they really know him? Do they have a relationship with him? Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, essentially deals with that question at the core. And what we're going to do is look at two main facets of knowing God from this passage by looking first this week at the conditions that the Proverbs writer presents to know God, which is, how do we know God? What, what do we need to do in order to know God? And then second are the blessings, and we'll cover that next week, of knowing God. So knowing God has these three conditions, according to this verse. First, total trust. Second, a Godward perspective. And third, reverent fear. Total trust, Godward perspective, and reverent fear. Let's look at this first condition, total trust. I see this in verses five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then verse six, one repeated word, in all your ways, acknowledge him. You notice the Proverbs writer, he doesn't really give us any wiggle room to sort of trust him. Actually, his point is that if you don't totally trust him, you actually don't trust him at all. That there is no such thing as quarter trust, half trust, or three quarters trust. There's either all trust or no trust. 
I mean, think of it this way. It's like a, a child, little girl. Uh, her dad is in the swimming pool. And for the first time, she waddles out. And she's never been in the pool. And so the dad says, come on, come and come to me, jump in. And so she sticks her toe in, she goes back. Then she sticks her foot in and goes back. Then she sticks her knee in and go back. You could say she went into the water. I mean, that's a real honest answer. But did she trust her dad? Sure, she trusted him enough to be able to sort of wade in. But wouldn't you say that if she took a running jump, flew into the water, jumped into his arms, and she started splashing around, I think all of us would say, wow, she really trusts her dad. The first few, as much as it might sound trusting, is not trusting at all. And I do think that that's often how we think of trust when it comes to God, is that if we give a little bit to God, but not everything, then we're really trusting him. The answer is no, we're not. We don't trust him at all. You know, oftentimes when we think about areas of trust, trusting our resources, we might be called on the Lord to give of our efforts and our energy, our money. Sometimes we bristle at the idea of a tithe because tithing means giving 10%. And forget about the whole argument of what, what a tithe means or all that, but in our mind, 10%, that's a lot until you get a 10% sale. And then you say, that's not a good sale. <laughs> so 10% is a lot when we're asked to give it, but when we get 10% off, it's not enough. That's a stinky sale. Trusting is the ability to say, I surrender all, as the song goes. I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. I surrender all. Also, trust has this incredible impact on others. When one person trusts wholly and people start seeing that trust, it inspires. It, it causes people to mobilize and to act and to respond. And when that happens, it really is marvelous. It's one of the reasons why we need people who have strong faith, who trust in the Lord, who give of themselves. I love the way how Pastor Ortland, uh, Ray Ortland describes this. He illustrates this by telling the story of one of his sem seminary professors. This seminary professor's father would cross often the Susquehanna River in the wintertime. But the first time he did it, it, it had sheeted over with ice. And he didn't know how thick the ice was. So he, like all of us would do, he got on all fours. He slowly started crawling his way because he didn't know if, he, if the ice broke He'd be stuck and his life would be in jeopardy. And so he started crawling on all fours, slowly making his way until suddenly he heard this gigantic rustling sound behind him. And it was a wagon being pulled by four horses across the ice and zoomed right by him. After that, guess what he did? He didn't continue walking on all fours thinking, this thing's gonna crack. He got up and started walking across. And this is how Ray Ortland describes it. He says, too many Christians are like the man down on all fours, creeping along, way too cautious. Their trust in the Lord is half-hearted. Then along comes a wholehearted Christian, and he changes the tone for everyone around. You know, this happened to me, actually. Um, in 2005, 
we had a guest speaker. Uh, some of you know him. His name is George Sneeman. And he came from Hands at Work Africa. At the time, he was ministering to HIV AIDS patients in Masoy, Africa, a small community just outside of their home area. And he would go into these huts. He, would, he and his wife, Carolyn, would bathe these AIDS patients with sores. People were coughing and, and when, and this is at a time where there was still, just like COVID in March of 2020, AIDS in 2005, there was no real understanding of what HIV AIDS was like still then from 1980, even up to that point. And so because of that, there was so much fear and so much mystery and there they were doing what no one else did. So he shared these stories. He shared stories of times where even his children would kiss children with AIDS sores on their lips. And, um, and I would hear these things and all of us were there and there weren't many there, but when we heard it, suddenly, you know, the worries that we faced weren't so big. It's hard to hold on to, well, I need to really be secure with my life when you hear someone with faith and wholehearted trust actually living it out and it just changes the way you look at the world. This is what trust does, total trust. When people completely give their life to the Lord and trust him, he's really their father. And when you hear stories like that, which is one of the reasons why when we had baptism, I love hearing stories. Stories of people's lives, transformation. It's important for us because it shows us, well, I need to, I think I can trust like that. I can be like that. I want to follow that. Trusting God is contagious. Also, if we look at verse 6, verse 6 shows us how we practically trust God. We know him in all of our ways. We acknowledge him. We recognize that he's there. He's real. He's in existence. He's watching. He knows your thoughts. You're not a mystery to him. And whether everyone else has no clue what's in your mind, all the evil or all the good, all the praises, all the curses, God knows. And so when you go through each day recognizing that God knows all of that, it changes the way you live, the things you think about. It changes your demeanor and also your heart and all the sorrows and pains. It, it gives us a perspective. It's very similar to Jack Miller, Pastor Jack Miller's um, preaching the gospel to yourselves motif. It's what John Stott does every morning when he was alive. He was a theologian, scholar, biblical scholar. He said, I listened to him preach about this and he would say every morning he would wake up and he would go on his his bed and he would kneel and he would raise his hands really high and he would say the Gloria Patri. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, world without end, amen. And then he would go through his day. Because he needed to remind himself that God is the one who is sovereign. He's Lord. He's in control of everything. When you get that, when God is so big and you're small, you can go through the day and no matter what pains or sorrows or challenges comes your way, you're not overwhelmed by it. The, the essence of it all is to recognize that we have to realize that uh, everything is before the Lord. David describes it this way in Psalm 139, 4 to 5. 
even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. It's this constant awareness of God, who he is, what he has done, that drastically changes your daily experience of the day. And when we forget him, get ready for fretfulness, anxiety, irritability, fear, jealousy, envy to just start rushing into your soul. It happens unless we acknowledge our ways before him. And notice the result of this acknowledgement. He will make straight your paths. That's a really important phrase because it shows that, first of all, the paths don't actually change the shape. In other words, he takes the twists and turns that come and he straightens them. The straight path, though, is to himself. It's not as though... so. You know, when you're climbing up, if you've ever, like, if you were to drive up to Mount Diablo, there's a lot of big hairpin turns that you're taking up and up and up, and you slowly go to the summit. Eventually, if you take that path, no matter how twisting and turning, it gets to the top. And that's what God is saying, is that your life will have a lot of twists and turns. But I promise you that if you trust me, I will bring you to myself. And you need to trust, though, that the the twists and turns, while it seems twisting and turning to you, is straight to me, and it'll be straight for you. It will lead you directly to me. Until we understand that, we will not really know how to live in confidence, in assurance that we are in his will. Paul describes it this way in Romans 12, too but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So know God, renew your mind. In in other words, but the renewal is he's doing the renewing that you may, by, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I do think that um, uh, theologian Bruce Walkie has it right when he says that trying to say, what is the will of God for me in my life? That's a pagan idea. That's not a Bible idea. That's a a non-scriptural idea about how God reveals his will. Yet so many Christians have that. Well, I'm not sure what God's will is for me in my life. And I want God to reveal that to him. And what Bruce Walke is saying is that that's pagan. That's not coming from a Christian worldview. That's from a heathen, heathen worldview. It's almost as if God is playing, let's make a deal for us. I know only about one-eighth of you know what I'm talking about. And uh, there's three doors, and it's door number one, door number two, and door number three, as if God is Monty Hall, and he's saying, I want you to pick which door to walk through. But if you pick the wrong one, you're going to be punished. But if you pick the right one, then I'm going to bless you. And so you're looking at the doors. Should I go to one, two, or three? I'm not sure which one. What is God's will? What is God's will for me? This is exactly how tragically so many Christians think God operates with us when it comes to discerning his will. And that's a pagan notion. When we look at Proverbs and really the rest of the Bible, Romans 12 too, what we see is that God already does the transforming of your mind. He helps you to know him. He draws you to himself. He gives you a right view of who he is. And regardless of the door you walk through, 
you can rest assured that you are in his will. You will get to the place where he wants you to be. But we also know that there are many twists and turns and we can trust God's gonna make straight our paths. The second condition also is really important helping us to understand this, which is that we need a Godward perspective to know him. Verse five says, and do not lean on your own understanding. And then verse seven says, be not wise in your own eyes. Those are parallel statements. They're essentially saying the same thing. And here's the thing. You and I, we're not born with this Godward perspective. Actually, when it says, and do not lean on your own understanding, we're born with, I always lean on my own understanding. And when it says, be not wise in your own eyes, it's, I always am wise in my own eyes. Every time we get into a conflict, with a parent, with a child, with a spouse, husband and wife, with a friend. Know that your instinct is, I'm right. I'm wise in my own eyes. I know I'm right. It's when two people are in a conflict, how often is it that their initial instinct is to say, I'm wrong? If that were the case, we wouldn't have conflicts actually. But when two people conflict, there's always this sense of, I know I'm right. And we are instinctual in leaning into our own understanding. So we see this and experience this in so many facets of our lives. And we don't want to admit it, but maybe we experience this most with God. Fundamentally, that's where we're at, is that we read God's word. God's word says, trust me, trust me, follow me, obey me and you will be plentifully blessed and joyous, utmost satisfied. If God says, before you get married, remain pure. Do not turn, and yet we turn. Why? Because in the moment, looking at something illicit, doing something lustful is more pleasurable, and I believe that I trust that more than I trust God's promise. That's why we sin, that's why we steal, that's why we cheat, that's why we lie, because telling the truth while it is God honoring doesn't get me to what I think is right and best for me. This is the, the, essentially these, the place of my heart, it's where I rest. And so from there comes blame shifting. Oh God, you gave me this husband. You know, I prayed and fasted for two years, and I decided to say yes, but you gave me this man, you gave me this woman. Sounds like Adam and Eve. They had very similar statements. This is what our hearts are like, is that we don't want to know God, we just wanna know about God. Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, he tells a story of author Elizabeth Elliot she was visiting a farm in northern Wales and she was staying with a shepherd named John Jones. And Tim Keller describes the story this way. She watched one day as he was bringing his sheep and his rams to a vat of antiseptic that these sheep had to go into. Otherwise, they would literally be eaten by insects and parasites and so on. And this is what she saw. She said, one by one, John seized the animals. They would struggle to climb out the side and Mac, the sheepdog, 
would snarl and snap at their faces to force them back under. They tried to climb up uh, the ramp on the far end, but John would catch them, spin them around, and force them under again, holding them ears, eyes, and nose submerged. And then she wrote, Elizabeth Elliot wrote, I've had some experiences in my life which have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor sheep. You know, two husbands died on her, Keller says. And she wrote, I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from the great shepherd I had trusted. And like these sheep, I didn't get a hint of explanation. And then she remembered another shepherd who said, sheep lose their direction continually. Even when they are found, it is very difficult to round them up. The lost sheep rushes to and fro. When you find it, you must seize it, cast it down, tie its forelegs and its hind legs together, put it over your shoulders, and carry it home. I know some of you have heard the parable of the lost sheep. And I don't know if you ever realized, but we tend to not hear that part of the story, which is we think the shepherd went and left behind the 99, found the one. The one was just sort of prancing around. He picked them up and said, oh, come on, sheep. Put them on the shoulders, and the sheep came. But actually, lost sheep, because sheep are stubborn, they don't want to be rescued. And so what they do is they will resist, they will pull, and, to, and to, so he has to grab, the shepherd has to grab that sheep, force it down, tie its legs, sling it over his shoulder, and force it to come home. And this is what she says. Let me tell you what our problem is. We refuse to admit the distance between the great shepherd and us sheep. The wisdom differential between the two of us is infinitely greater than the wisdom differential between a shepherd and the sheep. Sometimes the most loving thing to do with a sheep, if you're a shepherd, is grab it, cast it down, seize it, and tie it up with not a word of explanation. There are so often many times I have done all that I can to prepare you and me for these times. Times where we say to the good shepherd, stop tying me down. I don't want to go there. And what he's doing is taking us because our instinct is to run over the cliff. Or we say, why am I suffering so much? Why did this tragedy have to happen? What, are you really good? Are you true? And he's stuffing us under the water as all the parasites are being eliminated from us that are eating us alive. We have to be ready for the day to come. As Proverbs describes later, the ants work hard for the winter in the summertime. For some of you, summer is now, it's good. But trust me, there will come a winter. That winter will come with the death of a loved one, with chronic pain, with a tragedy, with financial difficulty, fired from your job, wondering where the next paycheck is gonna come and how are you gonna be able to support your family. All of those things can come, will come, if you live long enough. And when it comes, and I come to visit your house and to pray for you, I tell you that I won't actually be saying, hey, remember, God is good always when you're going through this suffering time. Because at that time, I'll just be crying with you. Because the last thing you want to hear is, God is good through your real tragedy. Yes, that's there, but I say it now in the summertime to prepare you for the winter. And unless you are acknowledging him in all your ways, not just in the summer, but in the winter, you will sink. 
you will go over the cliff. You will not understand that sometimes God puts, puts you into, just dumps you into the water, seizes you because you don't want to go in because you're being swallowed up by parasites and insects and diseases. And he says, you're going into the antibiotic tank. I'm going to get rid of all this for you, but get ready for pain. How do you get to the place where you can not only experience that, but experience God's goodness? You have to know him, not know about him. You have to know him and you have to trust him, not dip your toe into the water. You have to throw yourself in. Without this Godward perspective, without totally trusting him, it's impossible to know him. You only know about him. The third thing you need to know him is you need to have reverent fear for him. Look at verse seven. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Remember last week? This is the underpinnings of every single proverb we have in the Bible. Without having the fear of the Lord over and over again, just embedded into our mind, then Proverbs becomes a bunch of instructional advice, a how-to manual of how to be a Christian, how to be a, a God follower. And you're going to think, wow, all I need to do is just do this formula of do's and don'ts, and then everything will be great in my life. That's not called Christianity. That's called prosperity gospel or a false gospel. That's not the gospel. That's a false gospel. What makes Proverbs and the enacting and trusting and, and working out of Proverbs good for us is the fear of the Lord. It's having this awesome, may I say, terrifying, awful fear of God. I do think we need that. If you don't tremble at his word, come to him with a sense of wonderment, then perhaps you don't really know who he is, really know him. And without knowing him that way, you won't pursue him, not really. You won't trust him. You won't look to him for counsel. You, especially when the counsel doesn't match up with what you're feeling. Because again, our instinct is, I need to protect myself, make myself feel good about my life. And God's word is, I want so much more for you than your limited scope of what you think is good for you. It truly, it is like a child, a little infant child that says, I know what is good for me. I'm going to live my life without you, parent. We would think that's ludicrous. That's impossible. But yet we do that to God all the time. And the distance of child to me as an adult, as a father or as a mother, that is nothing compared to the distance between me to God in terms of knowledge. And yet I do that to God all the time because I don't have enough reverent fear. I don't look to him and see him as he is. Proverbs says, remember the fear of the Lord. Every day acknowledge him. Go on your beds and say, Lord, you are God. You are king. We sang a song that said, you are the everlasting God. If we're not stunned by that phrase, then maybe that speaks a lot about just all the concerns of our hearts that have just clouded us from understanding who God is. When we understand that he is most worthy, most to be feared, most holy, you know what happens? 
It's not that we are so cowering in fear that we can't do anything and God is so transcendent and distant from us that he's nothing. Rather, he actually becomes someone we cherish, we love. Now you might say, but that seems to be a paradox. How can someone you are most fearful of be someone you also most cherish and delight in? How can that work? There's an illustration that I've used before. It it's, comes from uh, Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28. It's in this great part of Ephesians 5 that is a message to husbands. Um, and it says, he who loves his wife loves himself. And I've shared this with men uh, towards, their women, towards their wives, and I've said, you know, guys, if you look at what Paul writes in Ephesians 5.22, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He sanctifies her to present her pure and spotless. And then Paul goes through this whole point of saying, well, that started in creation. And it's, but there's this one verse that just hit me like a ton of bricks. He who loves his wife loves himself. Because as a husband, my, and as a, just a sinful human being, my instinct is to love my, me. And I have this inclination that if I get what I want, I'm going to be most happy. And if my wife is there in existence to do whatever I say to make me happy, that's when I'm the most happy. After the first decade of working through that and realizing that was absurd, and it actually led to misery. You know, that type of attitude leads to misery for wife and husband. But actually leads, but really it leads misery to me as husband. Because the more I fight for my own rights and my perspective, and you don't understand me, and this is, I'm doing all this. And if any, if you had another husband, you you would really understand how great you have it right now. Okay, I've said those things before. <laughs> I, I, I hope, I'm sure there are a lot better husbands than me out there. But the first 10 years was so much about fighting for myself, making sure that I was understood. It was my position, my way. Until these words struck me, he who loves his wife loves himself. And I realized, you know, maybe loving my wife as Christ loved the church is actually the best way to love myself. Now, that, I know you think, that, but that sounds so selfish. But that's the whole point of this, this incredible paradox of knowing God, is that the more we know God as holy and just and righteous, the more we begin to see God as merciful. Well, if God is so holy, why am I not judged and just completely wiped off the face of the earth? We're going to find out soon that there's a reason why. And we know, well, God is merciful. That I'm not wiped off the face of the earth. Not only that, it's not just that I'm not wiped off. I'm actually brought into his family. He calls me a child of God, a son. And he says, I'm co-heirs. I'm heirs with his beloved son, Jesus. And I have the rights and privileges of sons. How does it work that way? the more you understand the astounding nature of God's holiness, and then you also see God's goodness and his love and his mercy, that's when you begin to really find joy. And I know that even from the micro level of 
me and my wife is that the more I said, you know what, let me, let me live to help my wife to enjoy herself. Not in a servile way, but in a way in which I can unleash in her a delight to love and love Christ. And that marriage is not a burden, but a joy. And the more I live for that goal and that purpose, it just boomeranged back to me. She became more affectionate towards me. And we just started trying to, as Paul says in Romans 12, outdo one another with love. It's, it's an amazing picture of who God is. That God is the God, the more you worship him, the more you find your joy. The less you see him as God and the more you see yourself as God, all you find is misery, you're fighting for your own rights. You're trying to be better than everyone else. You're trying to put everyone else down because you're trying to be God and they're not. It is exhausting, depressing, sorrowing, grievous. My friends, this is a treasure to see God as one whom we should fear. And when we fear him, only then can we truly love him and experience the love of him. And only then can we really be free to love others as well fully. But here's the challenge for us. How does that work though? Because as I shared earlier, I'm born not wanting this. My, I don't want to acknowledge him. I'm always right in my own eyes. I am the sheep that runs over the cliff. I am the sheep that is being eaten by parasites and insects and all sorts of disgusting diseases. And I'm running away, not wanting anything to do with the shepherd. My only hope is he has to act first. And you know what Proverbs says something about this in Proverbs 16, six, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And look at this phrase again. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. First of all, back to the fear of the Lord, it is directly connected to having our iniquities atoned for. You don't get to a place of fearing God rightly without first understanding that you're a sinner. You are abject, that I am corroded, I am parasite-driven, spiritually speaking. I have no ability on my own and when it says by steadfast love and faithfulness, one thing for certain is that that's not about my steadfast love and faithfulness. That's about God's steadfast love and faithfulness. He's the only one whom we use those words to describe throughout scripture. And the way that God shows that most is through his son. Jesus is the one who reveals God's steadfast love to us. Jesus is the one who is perfectly faithful when everyone else was faithless. And it's by his steadfast love, his faithfulness, that iniquity, sin, unrighteousness, rebellion, that's atoned for. It's cleansed. Jesus had to come, the good shepherd. He had to seize us when we're running away from the vat of wanting to be clean, and he just drags us in. He says, I don't care what you say, you're coming with me. And he dunks us in because he loves us and he wants us to be free. He says, you're running towards a cliff. You think it's fun, but I'm sorry. You're gonna find out how 
much better following me, isn't it? But we don't care about him. We, it's not like suddenly we say, all right, we want to follow you. No, he grabs us, he ties us up, he puts us over our shoulder, and he brings us home. And then when we're home, we say, oh, yeah, this is pretty awesome. I never knew. I was running to, a, to this garbage. The gospel message is that when we have a picture of a right view of God, when we know him, and we say, this is my father, and we're his children, and he loves us, and he cares for us. And, he, and Galatians says he gave himself for us. That's where our joy just is infinite. And my friends, I, I do think that so many of us, if you're like me, we fight for our rights, our wisdom, and you can do it my way, son, my way, daughter. And I have a role in that. I am a parent. I'm supposed to guide and shepherd. But I'm always battling my flesh, really. My, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a Christian, as, a, as just a human being. I'm always wrestling with this desire to want to do things my own way, to be wise in my own eyes. What hope do I have? Save the cross of Christ. That's where the good news is. I hope you come to see that. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, stop running. If, you've, if you're a prodigal, you're, you've thought, there's so much better out there. You're running towards a cliff, my friend. You don't want to fall. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. Lord, I pray for our, these dear beloved friends before me. I thank you for the church. There are some, though, in this room who do not trust in you, and they are heading towards that cliff. They think it's fun or it's satisfying for themselves, but it really isn't. There's always an end to it. And even if we don't experience it now, it will come. Lord, do not pass this by. I pray, Father, that you, you who gave your son, the good shepherd, who would go and rescue, would you pull them in, Lord Jesus? Lord, we turn to you. We're so thankful for the cross. Thank you, Father, for all that you've provided. Thank you for this rescue. There's no way we could do this on our own. We would never know you if it was left to our own devices. But because of your steadfast love and faithfulness, you have cleansed us of our iniquities. And now we have this wondrous fear of you. The fear that you are good you're loving, you're merciful, and yet you are transcendent and holy and awful. And both ring true. May that stir our souls and give us such joy in Jesus, in the gospel of Christ. In your name we pray, amen.